40 here. Haven't we been down this road before? It seems fairly familiar that the the left, the Democrats, the the liberals think, oh, now we've finally got the goods on Trump. We're going to be able to stop him from taking political office. I know a lot of Democrats and and centrists I knew were absolutely convinced that Donald Trump would never win the Republican nomination. He would never win the presidency, that if he won the presidency, he would never take office. If he took office, he'd be impeached within three months, six months, a year. But it never happens. There seems to be a certain familiarity with with the process. And you see this with this latest FBI raid that, oh, it's like now now we've got him, right? But uh, so far, they haven't produced the goods. Right, you'd think that if they had the definitive goods that they would produce them, though Julie Kelly argues in American Greatness that Trump is heading for indictment because Democrats control grand jury proceedings in Washington, D.C. They've got you know, a 10 to 1 advantage in grand jury participants compared to Republicans. So it's interesting that the voice of reason in all of this is former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat, saying Justice Department must immediately explain the reason for its raid. It must be more than a search for inconsequential archives. Is this order to fight over memorabilia, says Steve Saylor? Because right now the raid looks like a political tactic. It's going to undermine any future credible investigation. It's going to undermine the legitimacy of the January 6th investigations. And so Politico says, oh, the feds have obtained pulverizing amounts of evidence. Well, let's see. All right. They haven't come forward with that. Let's get to Tucker. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. You hear people say the federal government seems big, maybe bigger than ever. Well, it actually is the largest employer in the world, the federal government. Nothing else comes close. Not Google, not Amazon, not the Communist Party of China. Nothing. How many people work for the United States government? Let's put it this way. There are more than 100 countries around the world whose total populations, that is every man, woman and child, are smaller than our federal workforce. Entire countries, many of them. The U.S. government, in other words, is astoundingly large, world historically big, scale without precedent, truly gargantuan. So what do all those people who work there do every day? You may be wondering that. Well, it's a good question. Actually, nobody's really sure, including many of the employees themselves. Fundamentally, the federal government is a mystery. Like the universe, it goes on forever. It makes you feel small thinking about it, which is probably the point. The good news is every once in a while, our government does something you can actually understand. That happened recently when Joe Biden signed a $750 billion piece of legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act. What does the Inflation Reduction Act do? Come on. What are you, slow? The answer is right there in the name. The Inflation Reduction Act is an act that reduces inflation. It's an inflation reducing act. And that's welcome news because inflation is indeed a problem. In fact, voters say it's the problem they worry about most. So Congress has decided to reduce it. That's how things work in Washington. You identify a crisis and then you pass a law making it illegal. Crisis solved. It's simple. Getting too hot for you this summer? No problem. Just have Congress write a law banning high temperatures. That's effectively our climate change policy. And as we know, it works. The science on that has been settled. Don't deny it. 
Now Congress has decided to bring that very same approach to inflation, just command it to go down. You can imagine how terrified inflation will be when it discovers it's being reduced by our all-powerful Congress. Wait, it'll say in horror. You passed an Inflation Reduction Act? Okay, fine, I surrender. Gas is now $1.50 a gallon, hamburgers two bucks a pound. Sorry for the high prices. That's the promise of this act anyway. But in real life, a lot of people are still wondering, how is this going to work? Hillary Vaughn from Fox was wondering that. So yesterday, she caught up with Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Manchin is the man, the single man, whose vote made this bill possible. Is the Inflation Reduction Act really going to reduce inflation, she asked? Here's how Joe Manchin responded. When it comes to inflation, is it misleading to call this the Inflation Reduction Act for Americans when it's not going to make their grocery bill cheaper? It's not going to make everyday goods cheaper for them? Why would it? Why would it? Well, immediately it's not. But you know, we never said anything happened immediately like today. It's turned the switch on and off. So as Hillary Vaughn pointed out correctly, the law won't immediately make anything cheaper to buy. In other words, it will not reduce inflation. But Joe Manchin didn't deny this. He didn't seem bothered by it. In fact, his response was, why would it? Well, let's see, because you told us it would, you dishonest little creep. And then you printed another $750 billion of fake money, which is exactly the habit that caused historic inflation in the first place, all this fake money printing. So what's the upside of this bill exactly? Joe Manchin didn't say. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland couldn't explain it either. Watch this. I know that those who've been blaming President Biden for the inflation going up are now giving President Biden all the credit for inflation going down. So we're moving things in the right direction already. Yeah, and what parts of the bill do you think will will quickly work on that specifically? The, the, uh, next question. <laughs> I'm Jamie Raskin. I'll say anything. What parts of the Inflation Reduction Act will actually reduce inflation? Next question, says Raskin. He actually said that out loud, as you just saw. In other words, you've caught me lying, and I don't even care. Go away, peasant. So as it turns out, and we hate to break this to you, the Inflation Reduction Act may be a classic example of misinformation. Imagine buying a bottle labeled shampoo and finding out the hard way it was actually drain cleaner. It's like that. So if there's one thing we can learn from the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, it's that in Washington, words no longer have any meaning at all. The empire has officially entered its postmodern phase where there's no connection whatsoever between the sounds that emerge from the mouths of our leaders and observable physical reality. Congress might as well have called this the Eternal Happiness Act. And why not? That'll probably be the name of the next bill Joe Biden signs. And we hope so because we are long overdue for Washington to ban sadness. They ought to get on that. Not that this bill was even thought about by Joe Biden, not that he even noticed this bill. Biden doesn't get too caught up in the meaning of words these days. Biden is definitively post-literate at this point. Here was the scene as he signed his most recent legislative triumph. Okay. Here you go. It's now law. Okay, here we go. I might as well put a sign on his desk saying, this guy has no idea what he's doing right now. Because he didn't, and it couldn't have been more obvious. The thousand-yard stare was the giveaway. There were doughboys in Verdun who looked less shell-shocked than Biden just did. But the question remained, what was in the bill? 
Well, let's see. You'll be happy to know that this bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, includes $3 billion for the U.S. Postal Service to buy new electric mail trucks. So why would your mailman need an electric mail truck? No one has ever explained that, but your mailman is getting one. And China is getting even richer from the electric mail truck batteries, which it makes. So there's that. Then there's another $3 billion allocated to block grants for something called environmental justice. That'll be overseen by the EPA, which used to look after the environment, but now it's in the justice business. Environmental justice gets about $60 billion in this new legislation, which is great if you're in the environmental justice business, but it leaves the rest of us wondering, what is environmental justice actually? Well, according to the bill, it means, and we are quoting here, facilitating engagement of disadvantaged communities in state and federal advisory groups, workshops, rulemakings, and other public processes. Okay, that sounds confusing, but also expensive. In all, the EPA alone gets more than $40 billion in this bill, including more than $30 billion for so-called disadvantaged communities. What are those? Well, they're not really defined. People who vote for Joe Biden. So what it really means is the EPA is going to spread more identity politics and race hate. Are you sick of that yet? The Biden White House is not sick of it. They're all in. For context, to show you just how all in they are on that, the total annual budget of the EPA currently stands at about $10 billion. So this is a lot of money flowing to equity and the disadvantaged. And of course, everything hangs on definition. So who gets to define what disadvantaged is? A disadvantaged community. Well, that would be the EPA's administrator, a guy called Michael Regan. This is a guy who's in his late 40s who has never had an actual job in his life. He's never worked for real business of any kind. But he does have priorities, and to give you some sense of what they are, we'll tell you what he told The Daily Show this year. And we're quoting, Everything I do at EPA is through the lens of environmental justice. Contracting, procurement, air quality, water quality, land management starts with, are we protecting the least among us, those who have lacked political representation and those who have not been at the table for decades, end quote. So really, this is about spreading race hate, as virtually everything they do is. They call it equity. It's not about protecting the environment. And if you're wondering how the environment's doing, take a very close look. Is anyone monitoring the chemicals in our water? No. We're busy conducting workshops for billions of dollars with disadvantaged communities. Right. So that may not be helping the environment, but it's definitely not reducing inflation. Inflation reduction is not the same as protecting people who lack political representation. That's, of course, Joe Biden's base. The 81 million who voted for him. That's what this bill is really about, rewarding his voters. That would include virtually every bureaucrat in Washington. They do very well in this bill, of course, as long as they promise to spend it on equity. However, they want to define that. There's $25 million for the Government Accountability Office to determine, quote, whether the economic, social, and environmental impacts of the funds described in this paragraph are equitable. The bill also calls for $10 million to be spent on equity commissions within the Department of Agriculture to combat racism. In other words, to commit racism. Really, not since the German government 80 years ago has any government ever paid closer attention to people's genetics. That's true. And yet no one notices it for some reason. Well, we do. There's more than $2 billion for the General Services Administration, something called the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Council. That gets $350 million. The Bureau of Indian Affairs gets $220 million. The Office of Native Hawaiian Relations gets $23 million. And it's not just bureaucrats who are getting paid. There are billions of dollars in new tax credits. Who do those go to? Joe Biden's donors. <laughs> of course, not to you. 
Are you in private equity? No. No, you're not. So you don't get anything. Biden described these credits yesterday. The Inflation Reduction Act invests $369 billion to take the most aggressive action ever, 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 ever in confronting the climate crisis and strengthening our, our economic, our energy security. It's going to offer working families thousands of dollars in savings by providing them rebates to buy new and efficient appliances, weatherize their homes, get tax credit for purchasing heat pumps and rooftop solar, electric stoves, ovens, I'd dryers. Like for a second. So you, you watch that and you realize maybe they are going to run him again because he doesn't actually exist. He is merely a conduit through which they change America. He has no idea what he's saying. He reads the script. He seems kind of non-threatening and out of it. That may seem embarrassing to you, a problem to you. You wonder, what does his wife think of all this? It's so demeaning and degrading. It's cruel to do this to a guy, feed him full of drugs and have him read someone else's script. But if you're trying to change the country really fast, this is very useful to you. So of course they're going to run him again. So again, to the bill, a nonprofit called Rewiring America, which supports this bill, decided to figure out how much money Americans are eligible to receive from the Inflation Reduction Act based on zip code, household income, tax filing status. So according to Rewiring in America, a married couple with one child in San Francisco, earning the median household income there of $120,000, would be eligible for nearly $12,000 in tax credits. But according to that same group, that same family of three making the median income in Youngstown, Ohio, for example, would be eligible for just $81 in tax credits. Ooh, that's weird. So the middle class gets shafted while people making hundred and twenty grand in San Francisco make out. Okay. So most Americans who are making middle class wages would be eligible for more savings only if they're willing to go out and spend thousands of dollars on things like a new heat pump water heater, an electric stove, or a heat pump clothes dryer. Right, none of which work very well. But the bigger issue is that all these tax credits for Joe Biden's base are going to increase inflation. This is the same thing that happened to college tuition when the government subsidized it. It got much more expensive. <laughs> Perfect. And that's already started. As the Washington Examiner has reported, electric vehicle manufacturers are now raising the price of their cars. Now, that the so-called Inflation Reduction Act includes a $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles. Quote, Ahead of the Inflation Reduction Act extending the tax credit of up to 7500 bucks for purchases of new electric and hybrid vehicles, Ford and GM announced price increases at similar rates. You following this? So the government pays you back your own money to buy a product, and then the manufacturer of the product raises the cost of that same product by the same amount. Oh, so it's a subsidy for them, not savings for you. Last week, Ford announced price hikes between 6000 and 8,500 for most of its lineup of its F-150 Lightning electric vehicles, while General Motors upped its electric Hummer costs by $6,250 last month. So what is that? They don't want to answer the question because the only potentially deflationary aspect of this bill is the tax increase, which is, of course, probably not a good idea when you're in a recession. But our government is not willing to cut spending and stop printing money. So instead, their solution is to take money from you. This is this is classic, right? So you print all the money you want because you hold the reserve currency. And then when inflation goes up, you just try and pull it out of the system through taxation. That's modern monetary theory. Look it up.
According to the Congressional Budget Office, this act will cost the middle class $20 billion a year in new taxes. The Joint Committee on Taxation has concluded that under this bill, 61% of taxpayers making between 40 and 50 grand will see a tax increase. 91% of Americans making between 75 and 100 will see their taxes go up. And 97% of Americans making between 100 and 200 will see their taxes go up. So if you're making 100 grand in Arlington, Virginia, are you rich? Oh no, you're barely scraping by. So it turns out that Biden was lying. Just yesterday, he told us that no one making under $400,000 a year will see their taxes go up. Watch. And I'm keeping my campaign commitment. No one, let me emphasize, no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes. <laughs> Folks. Yeah, not a penny more. I mean, again, you can't blame the guy. He's just a mannequin. But whoever wrote that knew he was lying. There is one group of Americans who will not pay more under the, that bill, and that's Biden's donors, the richest people in the country. Thanks to the Democratic Party's hedge fund support, and they have a lot of that in the private equity world, the final revision of this bill keeps the carried interest loophole in our tax code. That means that people who work in finance, many parts of finance, are able to report their income as interest. Okay, come on, Tucker, don't go off on, on the carried interest uh, loophole. I mean, that's just that's just going too far, man. The, the, the carried interest loophole, I mean, isn't that in the Constitution? I mean, isn't, isn't maintaining a carried interest loophole w what it means to be an American today? Come on, man. So with my brand new subscription to the New York Review of Books, look what I got. This nice little notebook here, I'm going to keep a, a very close eye on, on who's been naughty and who's been nice. So you've been warned. I've got my little red book here. All right, there seems to be something disturbingly familiar about this FBI raid last Monday on Trump's home. And uh, you notice on the first day that there was like giddy mainstream media reactions that uh, the feds obtained pulverizing amounts of evidence against Donald Trump, right? And uh, Matt Taibbi had a pretty good reaction the day after the raid. So this is eight days ago. He said, uh, we've reached that stage in American history where everything you see on the news must be first understood as political theater. That the whole messaging layer of the news now dominates the factual narrative. And one place you see that is in all the news articles about the Inflation Reduction Act, how it's a major victory for Joe Biden. It's really important that, that he was able to accomplish this. Well, isn't, isn't the wiser, more profound perspective that this is a major victory? All right, you have to see many, many years down the line. Like, the major victory will be if Americans are better off as a result of this legislation that uh, Joe Biden got some legislation passed is not a major victory in and of itself. It's a major victory for Joe Biden, but that has no wider significance. Uh, it's a major victory for the Democrats, but again, that's just petty partisan politics. That doesn't have uh, the wider significance. Right, whether any particular piece of legislation is truly a major victory depends upon what are the consequences of that legislation. And whether this FBI raid on Donald Trump was a major political victory or a major victory for the Democrats or the Republicans, it all depends on what are the consequences. We don't always see the consequences so clearly. So 
Right now, we don't know whether Trump's alleged offenses were great, were small, or in the middle. But this is a big story because there's tremendous political risk inherent in this decision to execute the raid. Because if it backfires, if there isn't great substance there, the Biden administration took the world's most reputable police force, writes Matt Taibbi, and turned it into, you know, partisan cops, right? So we may be looking at simultaneously the dumbest and most destructive political gambit in the recent history of this country since the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So the New York Times the next day reported that uh, the crime Donald Trump had committed was a delayed returning of 15 boxes of material requested by officials with the National Archives. Oh, my God. I can't believe Donald Trump delayed returning 15 boxes of material requested by the National Archives. Definitely send in the FBI. So if that is what it's all about, right, memorabilia, if it's not tied to January 6th or more serious offenses, then the Justice Department, the FBI, just committed institutional suicide. I mean, no matter what you think of Trump, all right, despite all the early reports of cheers in the West Wing and and that mood in the mainstream media of of celebration, right? But uh, we're now nine days on from the raid, and we don't have any evidence that uh, Donald Trump committed a crime here. And so there are whispers in the news business that editors are striking down a lot of jubilant language. And you can even see this playing out on cable TV. So even the most craven of the on-air ex-spooks are kind of crawling backwards from their buzzwords. So you see MSNBC talking about Trump raiding, the FBI raiding Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, and then they update their language to execute a search warrant. And we've seen this kind of numbing pattern of rhetorical slippage in coverage of all sorts of investigations into Donald Trump. All right. So initially, ah, oh, they've really nailed him this time. That uh, the authorities had probable grounds to believe a crime had been committed. And uh, the affidavit in support of this search warrant must be something else, says a Harvard-trained former assistant U.S. attorney. And you have all this hyperventilation. How many people remember all the other times that this exact rhetoric was deployed in an interminable list of other Donald Trump investigations only to backfire later? So the critics and opponents and enemies of Donald Trump have done, you know, a fairly effective job of limiting him. So once Trump won the 2016 election, they did everything they could to limit him and they were moderately successful and they denied his reelection bid. But... It just does seems to be kind of a numbing familiarity with this, you know, great waves of elation. And then the days and soon weeks start going by and you realize that there isn't substance to, to back up the, the elation. So Julie Kelly writes in American Greatness that's inevitable the Justice Department will bring criminal charges against Donald Trump, that this FBI stunt at Mar-a-Lago is part of creating the optical illusion that Donald Trump is guilty of any number of crimes related to January 6th or the mishandling of secret government documents or both. So it seems like Attorney General Merrick Garland and the whole Justice Department are fairly busy trying to build a public case against Donald Trump. 
any indictment would be the result of a grand jury investigation, and these proceedings will be held in Washington, D.C., in a courthouse filled with loathing for Donald Trump and his supporters. So grand juries are composed of residents of Washington, D.C., who gave Donald Trump 5% of the vote in 2020 and 4% of the vote in 2016. They've already issued hundreds of indictments and thousands of criminal charges against January 6th protesters, right? This includes charges against 16 January 6th protesters for seditious conspiracy, right? This is a rare criminal offense which no American has ever been convicted, but they're bringing it up against January 6th rioters. And so far, Merrick Garland's Justice Department is completely undefeated in jury trials of January 6th defendants, right? So Washington, D.C. juries are returning unanimous guilty verdicts on every single charge in seven trials since March. And they're not allowing any of these trials to be moved outside of Washington, D.C. So these D.C. district court judges are denying every application for a change of venue. So this is the legal and judicial circle of hell now coming for Donald Trump. So Democrats have raised expectations that Trump will soon will be in handcuffs and uh, failure to do so will result in a harsh backlash by their own voters. So the Democrats better deliver Donald Trump in handcuffs or face revolt from key members of their own party. All right, Brian McClanahan has some good points It's laughable here. what uh, Trump could be potentially charged with in this particular case. And it also applies to, to Hillary Clinton as well. Though in her situation, I think it's much more um, much more dangerous for national security. She was Secretary of State and destroyed thousands and thousands of subpoena documents uh, by wiping the server, of course, keeping a home server so she could do things on the side and also uh, destroying materials like that. Um, I think in her particular situation, when foreign policy is the only thing that she was in charge of while she was in the Clinton, I'm sorry, in the uh, in the Obama administration. Um, that is uh, that is much more egregious uh, egregious violation of uh, record keeping than anything Trump did. In fact, the only thing that these people want to get out of Trump essentially is did he write down stuff about insurrection? Right? I mean, this is what it comes down to. Uh, did he write down names? Did he did he put things out there that could be uh, could be uh, used in this January sixth show trial? So I want to focus on there's a there was a piece in the Washington Examiner on this that brought up this issue of records keeping. And that was a potential disqualification for office. Now, even the attorney that said this walked it back. And he walked it back because there would be some serious constitutional questions here. And what I mean by that is that um, the qualifications, as he admits, for president are spelled out in the Constitution. And this would have to be, you know, you would almost have to get this uh, Trump disqualified under the 14th Amendment if you were going to do it. Not under some, you know, sunshine law, essentially, which is what this is. We were talking about a sunshine law here. Now, the idea of sunshine laws is to prevent corruption uh, in government. And we know, right? I mean, one of the things the founding generation was worried about, and one of the things they thought was an impeachable offense, at least when they spelled it out during ratification, was corruption. And, uh, I mean, this is something that's very, very serious charge. We don't want corruption in government. And uh, the sunshine laws, of course, are designed to prevent corruption because you have to do everything out in the open. Uh, one of the great, one of my favorite presidents, Grover Cleveland, was was really good on this. You know, when he was governor of New York, he would hold meetings in his office and keep the door open and people would come in and try to bribe him and do things. And he would speak very loudly so everyone could hear what was going on in the meetings so that he would expose corruption. We know the Republican Party in the late 19th century was so corrupt that the purists, people like Charles Sumner, bolted the party, people like Horace Greeley, they left the party because they could see that it was just a, 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 a den of corruption, a bunch of snakes, reptile. Corruption is what made it great. 
Hamilton always wanted a little corruption because the corruption drove people. It drove the engine of things, right? People trying to get around the system. So fast forward into the 20th century, and of course we have all of these things happening in America. You have the Cold War, you've got World War II, you have all this stuff happening, right? But the Cold War is the big one. The Cold War is the big one. The Cold War is the big one because uh, there is all this discussion about you know, infiltration in government and uh, fifth columns and um, you know, communist, uh, communist uh, influence in government. And so uh, it wasn't, the idea was to try to root this out by ensuring that records were properly kept. That was on the surface that's what the argument was. We need to make sure that the president keeps all the records and the, these people in office keep all their records. You can't destroy this stuff. Uh, you can't flush it down a toilet, which is, of course, there's images now of Trump flushing or somebody flushing stuff down a toilet. Could have been Trump, but uh, with, with handwritten notes. So what we've done essentially is criminalize taking notes and not passing them on to the principal. I mean, this is, this is what's happening, right? The bureaucracy, the deep state, this is, this, is, this is prime for bureaucrats. They love this stuff because the bureaucracy, the pencil pushers, the papal shufflers, these people want to make sure that you have every single piece of paper. So ostensibly to prevent corruption, but more importantly, to backtrack what you've done and actually get you. These are gotcha things, right? This is what the design of this is. Now, a lot of this stuff is kept under lock and key at the National Archives for a certain amount of time. And maybe historic, well, we don't keep these things. Historians can't properly document things. We know that people stole stuff out of the National Archives all the time. And of course, as the piece I'm going to go into uh, says, most people are never prosecuted for this. They just hand the stuff back over and everything's okay. Yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, go on your way. You might get a fine. Or maybe you can't go research at the National Archives or something, but you're not thrown in jail for it, right? But that's the design here to make sure that people can get people. Uh, this is bureaucracy being the nanny state. It's the nanny state with uh, elected officials. I mean, this is what's happening. Now, to give you some historical perspective, I will in a second when, when I get through some of the piece, because uh, this is a new a new process in America, something that was, I mean, would have been scoffed at by uh, by members of the founding generation, even into the 19th century. So this is from the Washington Examiner. Trump disqualified from holding office. Clinton-linked lawyer points to U.S. code after FBI raid. With news of the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago, buzz quickly uh, bubbled up Monday evening about whether former President Donald Trump could be disqualified from holding office again. The FBI search of the Florida resort was related to Trump's handling of presidential records, including classified documents after leaving office, sources told CNN. The search warrant was connected to the National Archives, a senior government official told NBC News. So this is all about records that Trump possibly had at Mar-a-Lago. And they show up with you know machine guns and everything else to try to go and bust his safe open and get some boxes of stuff out of Mar-a-Lago. Again, the idea is to get Trump, right? To, to find some way. That, I mean, this is really searching in the dark now. We're, we're trying to find something. They know that there's not really enough evidence... In uh, the January 6th is not produced enough. It's all it's all suspicion. Even Jonathan Turley points this out. There's not really much action here. It's all discussion. So if Trump's taking notes, a note can now be used as evidence that Trump was doing something wrong. But of course, he never acted on any of this, really. I mean, none of this. Right. So that's the point. They know they have nothing. They know they all that they're doing is just tarnishing his name. Well, this guy was thinking about this. Well, when is thinking about something actually a crime? It's not. Only if you act on it, then it becomes a crime. Now, remember, I talked about this on Monday. Suspicion of something now can be used for indefinite detention in America. Suspicion. So there's suspicion that he was doing this. There's suspicion. This is where we're, we're criminalizing thoughts in the United States. And this is where this stuff gets a little bit crazy. The piece continues. Such reporting had Mark Ellis, the top, uh, Elias, I'm sorry, Mark Elias, the top lawyer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, who was drawn uh, scrutiny for his role in pushing Trump-Russia collusion claims, pointing to U.S. Code Title 18, Section 2071, quote, the media is missing the really, really big reason why the raid today is a potential blockbuster in American politics, Elias said in a tweet. The first subsection says, whoever willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, or destroys, or attempts to do so, or with intent to do so, takes and carries away any record, proceeding, map, book, paper, document, or other thing 
filed or deposited with any clerk or officer of any court of the United States or in any public office or with any judicial or public. Okay, so let's put this into some some more context. I was getting into an argument with two aficionados of Japan when I was in Australia, and they pointed out that, that Japan can't declare a state of emergency that is forbidden by their constitution. And so you don't have to be concerned about Japan declaring a state of emergency, for example, to combat COVID or to fight against China. And my response, you really think that Japan would risk its survival for some kind of you know bureaucratic nicety that, uh, that they will risk their well-being, the health of their nation, because it's in their constitution. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's in, in the constitution that you can't, you can't declare a state of emergency in Japan. It's against the constitution. Well, the constitution's not a death warrant. Uh, constitutions can be great, but you don't get to turn off your, your thinking and you don't get to abstain from making decisions because you have a constitution. So I'm all for the rule of law, but the rule of law is never going to be a precise algorithm. It's never going to be just something that a computer spits out. The rule of law will always require people to make a decision, right? It will always have a substantial human and subjective component. There's no way around that. So in some places, you can drive five miles an hour over the speed limit and you're in great danger of getting a speeding ticket. In other places, you can drive... 15, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, and you're in no danger of getting a speeding ticket because people are applying the law in both places, and people have different incentives, and they have, they have different informal policies. So it's like trying to understand how your new job works. Do you get most of your information from the job manual, or do you pick it up from gossip? So in the final analysis, someone has to make a decision, Merrick Garland, and the Democrats made a decision to arrest Donald Trump to try to buoy up their supporters and their turnout for the for the midterm elections, just like John F. Kennedy risked a nuclear war with the Soviet Union by throwing down in a massive confrontation over Cuba right before the 1962 midterm elections. And George W. Bush, large part of the reason he invaded Afghanistan and the, in 2002 and Iraq in 2003 is that he thought that would be good politically for, for himself and for Republicans. So we have bureaucracies and we have procedures and we have laws, but man does not live on law alone. So our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, likes to talk about the rules-based international order. And rule of law is great, but we're not going to sacrifice America's well-being to the rules-based international order. If the rules-based international order is going to prevent America doing something that is vital for its national self-interest, America is going to ignore the rules-based international order. You just can't escape making a decision. The primary purpose of every state is to survive. You can't just outsource the rule of law to objective algorithms and robots. And we have to decide what kind of country we want. And we have to decide how we're going to apply the law. And now that it seems so blatantly political, what Democrats are doing with the Justice Department rating Donald Trump, now it's inevitable that Republicans will respond in kind. Now, 
FBI agents are going to be in increased danger. I don't see why the FBI agents who carried out this raid should maintain their anonymity, right? Most people in the workplace have to be accountable for, for, for what they do. If an FBI agent is appalled by what's going on with the FBI, then he needs to leave. There's going to be massive blowback against the FBI because of the choices of the FBI. Well, let me rephrase that, because of the choices of the Justice Department and how they deployed the FBI. Those FBI agents who carried out the raid didn't have agency. They were just tools. They were just instruments. But unless Justice Department and the FBI provide evidence that this raid was necessary and vital to national security interests, so far they haven't, Trump gains considerable political capital. The Republicans will pay this back in spades. And you can't just take rescue in the rules-based order. And another thing that's going on here is that to, to be a good person since the Enlightenment is to be an increasingly controlled person. It's to be a secularized type of Protestant. So from a Jewish perspective, uh, Protestants seem fake because Protestants uh, are very nice, right? Protestants are much less likely to complain, to vent, to, to get angry, to, to get passionate, to lash out verbally compared to Jews, like Jews and other Middle Eastern people and Southern Europeans, all right, that, that type of Mediterranean Catholic, they're much more visceral, they're much more emotional, they're much more likely to tell you what's on their heart and mind, while re Protestants have a religious tradition, which is in large part a reflection of their genetic archetype, of they, they evolved in, in a climate where it pays to be very, self-controlled, to be very careful about what you say and do. So since the Enlightenment, we've had this kind of internalizing of this secular Protestant approach to life where you're very careful about what you say so that you're not racist, you're not sexist, you're not bigoted, that you're always you know, maintaining inside yourself, as demonstrated by the smallest gesture and the, and the smallest words, that you are saved, that you're one of the elect. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist Protestant, and if I had told someone to F off, they would have had great concern about my heavenly salvation. If I had told someone that you know, I'd, I'd had premarital sex, they'd have great concern about my heavenly salvation. If I publicly said things that were explicitly racist, they'd have great concern about my heavenly salvation. If I started swearing after dropping a piano on my foot, they'd have great concern because my, my swearing and my, my visceral emotional outbursts show that I don't have true faith in God. And so now we get the, the secular version of this where people are expected to internalize such an incredible level of self-control that they never even say or note down bad words, that they're not sloppy with, with paperwork. And there is this essentializing of the virtue of self-control. Self-control is a, a wonderful thing. But just because somebody says, F you, Right, that doesn't. There's no inherent quality that you can then attribute to them. All right, they're not necessarily a threat to you. They're not necessarily likely to be violent or to, to break the law. But there is in the liberal left this this attribution of essential qualities to people who don't maintain this you know high level of internal self control. So if you slip and you say something uh, racist or sexist or or bigoted or ableist or ageist or lookist. Right, you've then shown that you're not one of the good people, that you're not saved, that you really haven't internalized what what our society is all about. 
And I think this is what uh, Brian McClanahan's talking about. Public here. officer of the United States shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than three years or both. The following passage then that says anyone, quote, having the custody of any such record, proceeding map, book, document, paper, or other thing, willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys the same, shall be fined under this title or in prison not more than three years or both, and shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States, was the one Elias highlighted. The former federal prosecutor, Harry Lippman, argued Elias made a huge point about the record provision the Justice Department appears to be investigating. So this could be the whole enchilada in terms of DOJ resolution, he said. So these are two little lefty lawyers running around saying, here we go, we got him, we got Trump. Look at what we got, we got Trump. Uh, and they're, they're bitter over what happened in 2016 with the FBI. They're bitter about it. Look, this is payback. They know that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 because of this kind of stuff, right? People didn't trust her. Now, Hillary Clinton was a horrible candidate and she... she I mean, look, the Democrats, uh, you know, stepped in it. But Hillary Clinton lost in their mind in 2016 because of this kind of stuff, because of the server, because of uh, the accusations made by the FBI in the last days of the campaign. This is why she lost. So what they're trying to do is, is dredge this stuff up so that they can get Trump and they can get back at Trump. Because they think this is, I mean, this is it. The, the, these people have such bad Trump derangement syndrome, they're really missing the bigger picture in America, which is Americans don't really like these kind of... Um, spineless weasels. They don't like them. They think they're silly. They think they're stupid and they want them away from government, right? That's the, I think the majority of Americans are in that position. They look at these people as just a bunch of, you know, blobs. Um, and, uh, they're missing that, you know, Trump in, in so many ways, Trump was, um, just a conduit, you know, make America great again comes from decades ago, right? This is something that's bigger than Trump. I mean, uh, if you take my Southern cultural and intellectual history class at McLean Academy, I talk about in the fourth class, Pat Buchanan, and his Make America Great Again speech in 1992. Uh, I mean, it was a huge deal. And of course, I get into uh, Jimmy Carter's Malay speech, which is, you know what? Make America Great Again. This is what it's all about. If you go back to George Wallace and you, and you read what Wallace was saying in 68 and 72, it's Make America Great Again. That's what it is. And uh, people don't realize that the movement Make America Great Again is bigger than Trump himself. So you can take out Trump. Uh, now, again, some people have pointed out by doing that, what you're going to do, of course, is create and among, among his, among his uh, followers and people that support Trump. They're going to look at this as petty and they're going to energize because of this. I think that's true. I think people are really going to get fired up over this if Trump is uh, disqualified from holding office because of some technicality like this. But you've got the true believers. If you go on social media and you look at the tweets and you look at all the replies and everything, you've got the true believers out there that believe that this is the smoking gun. This is going to get Trump and it's going to take him out and make America great again is going to die. And all of these MAGA people are going to go away. They're going, it's all going to be discredited. There's nothing to it. It's all just a cult of personality where I would say it's actually something much different. This is uh, people actually acting on the ideas behind this. Um, and uh, the symbolism behind it more than anything else than just Trump the man. Now, Trump is funny. Trump says funny things. He makes great speeches. He's, he's very engaging with the crowd. I mean, that's that's part of it. But the whole idea is bigger than Trump. The piece continues. MSNBC contributor Frank Figaluzzi, who's formerly, who served formerly as the assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI, offered some words of caution. Quote, first, I want to caution people. The majority of people in these cases, if we're indeed correct that this is largely about a National Archives case, they don't get charged. But then again, the majority of people turn over their documents, he told uh, MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell. Convictions under U.S. Code Title 18, Section 2071 were previously debated during the 2016 presidential cycle after former Attorney General Michael Mukasey argued in 2015 that Hillary Clinton would be disqualified from holding office if... Okay, let's uh, get a little perspective here from Paul Gottfried on this FBI raid. Paul, what are your thoughts on what happened? Well, it, it was not something that took me entirely by surprise since I 
uh, I think the FBI and the other secret service uh, branches of our secret service are very much in league with the deep state, and which means the Democratic Party. Uh, and they obviously hate Trump, uh, whom they see as at least rhetorically a threat. He hasn't really done that much against them. Uh, I mean, there are many things he could have done to overhaul the federal bureaucracy, to transfer people from, you know, from one job to the other, uh, to clean house uh, in the FBI. He didn't do any of these things. But uh, the fact that he expressed hostile feelings toward these people um, and attacked the something called the deep state um, and was hostile to the Democratic Party, with which the Secret Service has been allied, particularly since Obama became president. <clears throat> um, I think all, all, all of these uh, say all, all of these conditions or situations um, uh, in, in, in some ways contributed to what was done to Trump. Now, I, I think I think there were, there were other reasons that they, they did this that to me are very obvious. None had to do with uh, declassification. I think it's a bunch of junk. Um, you know, he dec- could declassify stuff. He was cooperating with them and so forth. Uh, as the governor of Texas uh, had begun I, I busing migrants to sanctuary to cities the, like, like the D.C. and New York, which richly deserve them. But it turns out a lot of these illegal aliens are not making it to those cities. They're winding up instead in places like tiny Dade County, Georgia, which is in the rural western part of the state. Here's a local report from WTVC in Tennessee. Here in Lookout Valley at the Comfort Inn and Suites Motel, another bus has arrived. An employee inside the motel did confirm with us that there are migrants on these buses. A CPD spokesperson on the scene said the buses are transporting migrants from Texas to D.C. and New York. But Chattanooga is a rest stop. There's a similar story in Dade County. Earlier this week, the Dade County Sheriff's Office confronted migrants being dropped off in Rising Fawn. He got a translator and the migrants told him that uh, they were told that they were being dropped off within walking distance of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Ray Cross is the sheriff of Dade County, Georgia. We're honored to have him join us tonight. Sheriff, thanks so much for coming on. What are you seeing in your county? Okay, let's get more from uh, Paul Gottfried on this uh, FBI raid last Monday. And uh, as as soon as this uh, outrageous thing was done to Trump, um, uh, 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 immediately... You know, his base rallied to him. Republicans who didn't like him had to come out and say nice things about Trump. One of the people, though, who did not even pretend to be on his side was uh, Mitch McConnell, um, who hates Trump, you know, and thought that he was sort of messing up the uh, the way uh, the way McConnell did business and, and, you know, and participated in bipartisanship and so forth. Um, but generally, Republicans did come out in strong support um, of Trump, including um uh, Tim Scott in South Carolina, who was was extremely uh, irate and eloquent, you know, in going after the FBI and their uh, uh, their unwarranted. It really was an unwarranted raid. So what what they've done is sort of made Trump the issue. Um, and if Trump announces his candidacy before the midterms, then he becomes even more of an issue, right? And uh, the Democrats have something they can run on. Um, and uh, I I, th- I think that th- that this is important because they've messed up everything domestically. Right. Immigration, uh, uh, inflation, critical race theory, uh, crime on on all fronts. (laughs) And they've been very unsuccessful. But what they've been able to do by uh, raiding Trump's house, um, as well as passing this uh, inflationary anti-inflation bill uh, and hiring, you know, which which, in which they have to hire 87,000 new IRS agents to go after people. What they've done is appeal strongly to their base. I mean, their base is profoundly ideological. Uh, It is anti-bourgeois. It is anti-American. Um, uh, it is against normal people, and uh, it is it is all for making government all powerful to reconstruct society. 
And of course, it is, it is entirely in favor of destroying Donald Trump. There was one FBI agent who said about executing Donald Trump. So, I mean, hatred of Trump um, has become the centerpiece of democratic politics. So they've been able to energize their base and at the same time, uh, driving Republicans into making the midterms somehow about Donald Trump rather than, than other issues. The GOP base would be demoralized, absolutely, because they would imagine that populist right who's supposed to be on his side. Um, I think he's a lot of um, and right. now these are people who hate Donald Trump, and I think the negatives for Trump uh, are much more striking than than to support. Um, and you know, I, I say I say this as someone on the traditional right who's supposed to love Trump, and on the populist right who's supposed to be on his side. Um, I think he's a liability uh, at at this point to the right. Um, he galvanizes it; that's fine, but uh, he is very, very damaged. And, uh, you know, he's been, he's been, the liberal media has been coming after him for years and so have the Democrats and so forth. And he has not always ha handled himself very well. Most of the time he has not. Um, he has made wild charges. He's fought with rap stars. He's, he's, he's behaved in a very undignified fashion. Um, and uh, I, I think by identifying with him, the Republican Party may make itself more vulnerable in my, in my view. And I say this with profound regret because I do not dislike Donald Trump. And I think what is. Wow. Uh, Fox News just put on an ad for for a group with regard to the USS Liberty. Like, uh, incredible wind. And everything immediately went black. I was gurgling a mixture of water, seawater, and oil. And everybody else in that space was, was killed. 34 men killed. Israel attacked 174 USS men wounded. In 1967. Just look the other way. Get the full story at justiceforliberty.org. Do you want to do something really smart wow. today? Well, justice for USS Liberty. I mean, normally that's that's you know a, a cry from from people who are horrified at uh, America's support for Israel. They want to point out, hey, Israel repeatedly bombed an American Navy vessel, killed what? 24 people injured, another 60. Just a horrific event that occurred during the Six-Day War. I didn't expect to see an ad on Fox News with with regard to the USS Liberty. Wow. I mean, did you expect that? I mean, times, times are changing. Here's a little more from Paul Godfrey. Uh, listening to our local news channels, which are... ABC, NBC affiliations, they always refer to Trump's insurrection as the head of an insurrection. It's not even open to question anymore. Um, uh, I, I, something that is uh, really alarming, and I think you're right. I mean, the media have shown their hand more and more about elections, but um, I'm noticing the way they treat the Oz-Fetterman race in my state of Pennsylvania. And uh, the reality is that Oz is running, all, running his tail all over the state, giving uh, speeches, going to different places, crisscrossing the state. And the media pretend he's absent, whereas Fetterman is like in his basement, the way Biden was. And they, they show pictures of him running around, into, which are like 10 years old, these pictures. Uh, he, he hasn't done anything, um, but they lie about what's going on. You know, and they make it appear as if Fetterman is hyperactive and concerned, whereas Oz, you know, is living at his mother-in-law's place in New Jersey or is out of the state or something like that. Um, it is the most utterly dishonest. Okay, let's say hello. To David. David, how's it going, man? Hey, Brooke Hashem. Luke. Yes, sir. 
So uh, how you been? I've been under the weather, but I haven't spoken to you in 10 days. So what's new? What have you been working on? Brokershem? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, writing regularly, so I've, I'm doing a lot of research. I, I probably read like over 10,000 pages on psychology, um, mostly theories of self and identity formation. I was reading today a very interesting book on theories of uh, development. You're going back, I guess, uh, with uh, Locke and Rousseau and uh, and the you know, Montessori, Piaget, Kohlberg, uh, the behaviorist, Bandura, uh, Vygotsky. I'm on right now. I'm going to Freud, Erickson. And uh, pretty interesting. Like, I'm trying to... Uh, write a book on my you know what i call the multiple truth hypothesis so jennifer encouraged me to just start writing so i'm trying to put out a you know essay every few weeks and i'm at the point you know like uh, some serious research but like scientific paper level um i'm not sure if you're familiar with the format for scientific papers well there, there are different formats depending on where you're going to publish it but I mean, obviously, different. For, there are also things that they have in common. But go ahead. What's the point you want to make? Well, the main thing for a scientific paper is the the historical review. So I mean, generally, if you're you know you're writing something scientific, you want to claim that you're doing something new. So in order to demonstrate that, the general format is you have an introduction uh, about you know what you're talking about, then you have to have a historical review of everything similar to your idea you know leading up in the modern era what are the current ideas on the market uh that are similar to yours or that uh you know obviously it's unlikely you're thinking about something for the first time so what are the great minds of the previous generation or their current great minds think about the subject you know, then you lay out uh if you actually do research or tests or, or uh you know experiments but you lay out what you're saying and then you have to have an analysis which says okay now that i've explained what i'm talking about I have to uh, put that into uh, you know what what uh, significance does that have to the current uh, you know marketplace of uh, of ideas? How might it change the direction of research? I mean, the book on conservative phobia. Um, I mean, it's, that's obviously a huge book, huge book. Most scientific papers are you know an average of like ten pages. So um, you know, right now, I'm trying to do the due diligence of. Uh, the historical review and so I'm, I'm really trying to read a whole bunch of psychology and philosophy books to uh see what you know what people have actually said on these subjects well you said that you found found it very interesting so give me an example what 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 are the things that you found out that have surprised and intrigued you um well, I guess the, you know, the concept of identity. So there, there's a popular theory I mentioned, like, I think, a few weeks ago when we talked about narrative identity. And you would call a psychosocial process that there's our internal reflection and, and then our uh, interaction with the environment and uh, identity. You know, so what, what is constant about a person and uh, remains the same over time, like a personality trait uh, like the big five are personality traits because they're uh, constant over time. But then there's many aspects of a person that uh, that change. 
And I'm interested in the, you would call the science of expertise. And it's interesting that expertise is considered a part of identity because, okay, well, you're an expert at something because you invested a large portion of yourself in how you represent yourself to other people. Well, like I'm, I'm Duvid, I'm the, you know, the chess player. I'm a guy who has a, you know, civil engineer or the guy who, uh, you know, invested my time, you know, like Luke Ford is, uh, you know, you know, the expert in pornography, God forbid, or, or convert to Orthodox Judaism. Oh, these are significant portions of our uh, identity. And uh, there's different concepts like self-efficacy, our, our belief in what we're capable of uh, accomplishing, uh, should we put our efforts into, and uh, different calculations. Um, so it's pretty interesting, you know, like, I mean, God forbid to say I'm going through a midlife crisis. I don't think I'm going through a midlife crisis, but I'm making a reassessment as I'm, uh, you, you know, in my middle age. And, uh, you know, like, who am I? How did I become the person I, I, I became? Uh, what type of decisions that did I make? And, uh, you know, they say the narrative identity. So you've written books, you've been streaming your public personality that's been interviewed by countless people, but your average person, no one really cares to listen to my story or narrative. Uh, but there's, you know, we have our family, or at least my own self-concept, what I tell myself, the way I understood the decisions that I made, and then to reanalyze it. Like maybe I was wrong about uh, you know what I thought uh, caused me to become the way I did, and uh, that could have significance to how I live the rest of my life and how we could act in a different way. So I mean, I mean, you're more in like twelve steps is more practical, focusing on self improvement, behavioral changes. Uh, I guess I'm interested in the practical, but I'm more a theoretician. You know, thinking about uh, the theoretical aspects of uh, consciousness and psychology. Well. I'm just thinking one example that immediately comes to mind that touches on what you're just describing. Think about what it's like to do a live stream when nobody's watching, when five people are watching, when 25 people are watching, or when, you know, 1,750 people are watching. I mean, it really has a profound effect on you. I mean, you get a lot more energy the more people who are watching and interacting. And it also has an effect on you if the people in the chat are doing the equivalent of, you know, throwing rotten tomatoes at you while you're sharing your thoughts versus people who are interested and intrigued and want to know more. So just that variable of the number and the quality of viewers that you get is going to have a tremendous effect on your confidence level, on your energy level, on the coherence of your thought when, when you're feeling at ease with yourself your thought tends to be much more smooth but if you feel under assault or under attack your, your world will kind of shrink down and uh, the things you say will be you know more awkward more jagged your your movement will become more awkward you'll develop all sorts of unnecessary uh, compression and uh, tension patterns in your in your throat, in your neck, in your face, in, in your stomach, across your shoulders, uh, across your back. So just uh, the, these comparatively little things of the number of people and the quality of people who are watching you can have a profound effect on your identity at the time. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talked, uh, you know, Jennifer Church of Entropy on Week in Review a lot about the establishment of expertise. So, you know, generally, like, I'm not that interesting of a person. Most people don't, they're not really that interested in me. If there's an audience, it's because I've established uh, expertise 
and then to feel like oh the audience and and uh, you know so I I released an essay today on the chess server thank God it got a thousand views uh, in the first day on uh, the hero's journey Joseph Campbell in the monomyth three part process uh, for you know, of uh, uh, of myths or, or becoming a hero but you know basically the inside uh, uh, I was tying that to expertise that uh, you know any person. I was, you know, just a general person, and then for whatever reason, I worked really hard to acquire expertise, and now I'm here to give over my expertise, you know, let alone, you know, a hero in a small light, and, and you could be like a plumber or any professional that, uh, you know, that has credibility, you know, there had to have been something that made them decide to go into the professional field and put the effort and work uh, required, um, but you're like, oh, I'm having plumbing work at my house done, but, uh, you know, do I really care my plumber's you know, journey of why he decided to go into plumbing. Basically, I just want the job done right. And for streaming, uh, I don't talk that much about myself, and I usually assume that uh, people aren't that interested in me. So I've seen that I've had big streams where you've know, had you know a handful over a thousand audience, and even semi regular on uh, bigger channels. And it's usually just giving over my expertise. And then if they come back to my platform, uh they're not really that interested. It's like, oh, now I'm duvid. You want to ask me anything? It's like, no, I don't, I don't really have anything to ask you. You're like, aren't you curious about like who I am or like, you know, my biography is like, no, not really. Um, and, uh, you know, my mom was a powerful lawyer. My father's a doctor. I, I think they had that kind of also where, where, you know, the people really don't care about your, uh, you know, your history. Um, you know, maybe in Hollywood, it's a little bit different where they're, you know, like, oh, wow, I'm fascinated with this person you know, who were they, how did they become who they became, or if people just accept, well, they went through some sort of hero's journey, and at the end of the day, they were they were probably just some nobody that worked really hard to acquire these skills, and now, uh, you know, like, now that's uh, who they are. Okay, why don't you DM me a link to your essay, and I'll just, uh, I'll just play, I'll just play some audio here, and uh, why don't you DM me a link and I'll take a quick look at it and we'll resume the discussion in, in a couple of minutes. Okay. <laughs> One man typhoid Mary. Unbelievable. Sean Hannity, right now. All right, Tucker, and thank you. There's your president. You. Uh, welcome, welcome to Hannity. All right, tonight, the people of Wyoming, they have spoken, and after losing by nearly 40 points to Harriet Hagman in last night's primary, Liz Cheney's days in Congress now are officially numbered. Liz sadly could not see the forest through the trees. She allowed her hatred for Donald Trump and Trump supporters to consume her. Uh, this became Cheney's singular focus in life. There was no bridge she wouldn't burn, no colleague she wouldn't betray. Okay, I'd, I'd have to, I just took a, a quick look at the essay and uh, there's nothing that, that I'm able to react to right now. So uh, this is this going to be the first in a, a long series of uh, essays, David? It's actually the 10th, the, my 11th essay. So okay. this one was actually my first essay and uh, I had published the first two just on Twitter, like review. Uh, Twitter has like a, a blog hosting spot and it's not very good. You can't edit it. So on the third one, I started posting on the chess server. And uh, so I've, I've done 11 essays. And so this was actually the first essay that I just uh, revised and posted on the chess server. And I was talking about the establishment of credibility or expertise. 
So I think like generally like, oh, I, you know, I don't want to listen to Duva. Like, you know, what, what does he know what he's talking about or more than, you know, all these other people that uh, think they know what they're talking about. Uh, but on the chess server, I'm, I'm a pretty good chess player. So, uh, uh, you know, I think it adds credibility. And, uh, you know, so it has over a thousand views. I'm averaging in the high hundreds of views on uh, on the chess server as opposed to uh, Twitter. I'm only getting tens of views on my uh, blog. Okay, and so what are the key components of the hero's journey? Um, the hero's journey comes from Joseph Campbell, and I guess he wrote in uh, 1949 where he says there's three generic processes of departure, initiation, and return. And uh, and he subdivides these into 17 steps. Uh, but the concept is that all heroes, all you know, myths, uh, you know, biblical prophets, uh, great great people, have this basic three step part uh, process where they're you know kind of like an average person, and then they depart and leave society, and uh, so that's the first step is is being you know departing regular life, and the second step is like an initiation process where they're given uh, some sort of special wisdom. And then the third part is the is the return, the triumphant return, where now with this special wisdom, they're able to come back into everyday life and, uh, you know, transcend it. And, you know, so Moses is a great example who, uh, you, you know, uh, it, it, I mean, he takes, I guess, high birth and is in Egypt's house, but he goes into the desert and he's revealed God, uh, you know, God's uh, at the burning bush. And then he goes back to, uh, you know, lead the Jewish people out of uh, Egypt, and I was just mentioning, uh, you know, general, the, any general acquisition of expertise where, you know, whatever reason, you're just an average Joe, and they're like, well, I'm going to, you know, withdraw from society to work really hard to acquire some special skill, and then once I've acquired the skill, then I'm going to be able to, uh, you know, re-enter society uh, as a hero. So Joseph Campbell, you know, calls this the monomyth and claims that, you uh, Basically, all narrative structures follow this three-part uh, process, and as mentioned, he divides it into uh, seventeen steps uh, with the, uh, you know, mul multiple uh, uh, subparts of departure, initiation, and return. And how does this play into music? Um, so I, I put that most music has this same three-part structure, where um, you have a have a key where uh, you know, there's a, a low-key introduction, then introduction of uh, dissonance, and then the high part that uh, has like a resolution of dissonance, usually the chorus. So, uh, um, you know, like I, I did on Week in Review a few, like, uh, you know, maybe a classic rock song, you're, maybe you're familiar with Steppenwolf's uh, Born to be Wild. Mm -hmm. You know, get, 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 on a, or, or get on the highway, uh, uh, looking for adventure, whatever comes my way. And then, uh, you know, it's like a second part, like a true nature's child. We were born, born to be, and then the high part, born to be why. Um, so it has this most uh, popular music, uh, synagogue music also. Uh, like most Lachad Dodi, uh, you know, has like a general two-part structure, but if you pay attention to Jewish tunes, it usually has like a, an, um, mirroring the God's name Yodhe Vave, an A B C B structure 
where the chorus is on the high part. Um, so it was my adaption to the general jo uh, Joseph Campbell's monomyth to uh, music. And I'm not sure if you're musical or, or read musical notation or have like a memory for of songs no. to, uh, you know, like a popular song to like, oh, part one, part two, part three, or recognizing that, uh, you know, that it's repeating a certain part. Right. So, I mean, music and literature, they, in large part, they depend upon a, a feeling of comfort by giving you what you expect and, and what's familiar. At the same time, if they only give you what you're expecting, what's familiar, you'll get bored with it. So they have to always introduce some dissonance against your expectations so that it, it keeps you interested, but not too much dissonance so that you become uh, that you become put off or, or feel unsafe. So people kind of want to know the direction that the, the music is going in. They want some familiarity with it, but they don't want to know every note in advance or otherwise there's no point in them listening to it, to a song. So it's a little bit like when you're a public speaker, people always interpret everything you say according to their own experiences. And so you need to be able to tune into a common reality with your audience, but then you then want to move them somewhere. You want to take them someplace that they haven't been before and uh, make them scream your name. If you're like a Barack Obama, for example, a very, very good uh, public speaker is able to capture a crowd. Anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, if it's interesting, I could probably do an example with a, a pretty common synagogue tune. And, and music has a special, you know, like the hero's journey, if you're like a television, um, you know, it's a good story. So it has the backdrop of the departure initiation and triumphant return. Um, but music is chanted together. So especially in synagogue, um, you you probably know the songs and if it's chanted together, you'll attempt, even if you're not a good singer, to sing the high parts together. And like you, you know, and, and if you're not a good singer because the congregation is uh, singing it all together, uh, you know, kind of carries the whole congregation together with it. And it's part of the purpose of congregational chanting. I was thinking, uh, uh, you know, the Shabbos Sumero uh, Eladon El Al Asim. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. This is a Mudgets tune, I would assume they probably sing it near you. The Eladon Alkalamasim, Borukavorak, the Pikalmashomo. Does it sound familiar? Yes. So, like the second part, uh, so, and then the third part is a high part. Hamisko el kayasakodesh vinadav kavod alamirkavo zgisi mishor lifneki so chesed verachmi muliko edo toivimi yaroi shiboralainu yitzoram bedas vino vaskel. So most Jewish tunes have this one, two, three, two structure. Where you know it starts out and then the second part is a little bit uh higher, and then it has you know the third the third the high part and then the come down is the repeat of the second part, and then starts uh, with the first part, so you know if you're probably in synagogue, maybe you don't know the musical structure and you're not thinking uh 
you know, like, oh, three part, part one, part two, part three. If you led prayer service, you probably would because, uh, um, you know, you would have to learn a song to lead prayer services. Uh, but, you know, even Luke, uh, Luke in the, you know, in the, in the pews and synagogue might be singing the high part uh, and, uh, you know, gets your blood working because you're singing, uh, you know, the high part. And that's kind of the design of a communal chanting a congregation of as a good prayer leader, he'll have the whole congregation chanting and it's enlivening. Um, so like, you know, you, we mentioned before, like, you know, Chabad and, uh, you know, you'll be dancing arm in arm with people. Um, you know, so it's usually, a you know, a musical technique that I'm referring to kind of like the hero's journey uh, that causes that to happen because it starts out with like a simple repetitive tune that anybody could sing. And then it, you know, leads to part two and then to part three. And in part three, everybody's singing, you know, very high. And that's, you know, invigorating because it you know, takes uh, your full breath. It takes, uh, you know, your koikos, your, your to-do. And then people are up and uh, up and dancing. So, uh, you know, if you ever thought about maybe you never led services or, or you know, like, uh, you know, I mean, even in like the synagogue where you go to, if you led prayer services on Sabbath, and uh, you know, like Mim Konka during uh, uh, during uh, Kedisha, you would probably sing a song, or El, you know, Kale Adon, you would probably sing a song. So I suppose even where you pray, even it's very non-musical or litfish, they probably still sing Kale Adon. They probably still sing a song uh, during uh, Kedusha. And whoever is the prayer leader has thought about this and memorized tunes, and uh, you know, so there's a wisdom to it. So uh, Reasonable and Responsible says in the chat, do the way you enunciating the divine names in four. You're only supposed to do that while actually praying. So this is a, a traditional Jewish practice that you don't enunciate the the divine names in full unless you're actually dovening. Do you have any thoughts on this practice? Um, I don't think I did. I mean, I mean, my, I, I, you know, I don't think Caledon, uh had, I said Eladon. Um, I mean, generally, to say the name, if you're saying it as part of a prayer, it's like saying a verse. And so, like, in Torah learning, you're allowed to say the name. So, like, in prayer, but, but, but uh, you know, if you, the halacha, if you're teaching someone Torah or if you're saying the verse, you're allowed to say the divine name. And I don't think it actually had, uh, um, you know, say, like, Adonai. Or something like that, just, you know, just like oh, he said out of noise. That's like a sin. Uh, but like, if you're doing Torah learning and just talking about like this is how you say God's name or in reference, uh, you know, generally that's allowed. It uh, reminds me of the life of Brian, where someone is being stoned for taking for saying God's name, and, and the guy is getting stoned. Said, "Look, all I said was that my wife's, you know, cooking." It was was good enough for Jehovah, and then people just like start throwing throwing stones at him. So, did you ever see the life of Brian? Yeah, I might have, but no, I'm not such a a movie guy or an entertainment uh, person. But yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the uh, you know those uh, you know jokes. I, I guess like uh, you know the Abbott and Costello, who's on first uh, type uh, type thing, and and you know, you always have some wise guy in the chat that. Uh, you know, like everybody's a rabbi, you know, like no one cares about Judaism. But then when you say something wrong, everybody in the chat's a rabbi. And uh, when did when did you get this new chair? You got a gamer chair. 
I got it a few months ago already. Like, you know, once I started making some money on my eBay business, I started, uh, you know, buying some stuff. And, uh, you know, so one, one of the first things I got was a, was a nicer chair. And are you happy with it? Yeah, I mean, it's not, this one was only like $200. It's not great. It doesn't lean back. Like, it's, you know, it has a little cushing, and, and I, I could manually lean it back. Um, you know, maybe I'll get a nicer one at some point. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's definitely way comfortable than what I had before. Okay, so I want to read a little excerpt from Ernest Becker from this uh, terrific book that I've been reading on uh, conservative claims of cultural oppression, meaning the, the nature and origins of conservophobia. So Ernest Becker was a, an intellectual, and uh, he wrote about uh, society and the individual and psychology, and he wrote, he wrote about death and the, the development of our personality. So here he is. He says, you get a good feeling for what the self looks like in its extensions if you imagine the person to be a cylinder with a hollow inside in which is lodged the self. Out of this cylinder, the self overflows and extends into the surroundings as a kind of huge amoeba, pushing its pseudopods to a wife, a car, a flag, a crushed flower in a secret book. Or I remember when there was this girl I really liked and I met her on a Friday night and I got her to write down her, her phone number. And so on, on a piece of like Wrigley's chewing gum. And so that, that piece of Wrigley's chewing gum wrapping paper was, was forever special to me because of what it, what it symbolized. So here's the, the self that's pushing outward. And the picture you get is of a huge invisible amoeba spread out over the landscape with boundaries very far from its own center or home base, tear and burn the flag or find and destroy the flower in the book, or God forbid, destroy my, my gum wrapper with Rachel's phone number on it. And the amoeba screams with soul-searing pain. So usually we extend these pseudopods not only to things we hold dear, but also to silly things. Ourselves are cluttered up with things that we don't need. They're just artificial things, sometimes debilitating ones. For example, if you extend a pseudopod to your house, as most people do, you might also extend it to the inventory of an interior decorating program. You might get vitally upset by a piece of wallpaper that bulges and a shelf that does not join, a light fixture that isn't right. Sometimes you'll see the grotesque spectacle of a marvelous human organism breaking into violent arguments or even crying over a panel that doesn't match. Interior decorators confide that many people have somatic symptoms or actual nervous breakdowns when they are redecorating. And I've seen a grown and silver-templed Italian crying in the street in his mother's arms over a small dent in the bump of his Ferrari. So I remember when I got my first car, it was a 1968, I believe, Volkswagen Bug. And that car was so precious to me, I would clean it inside and out. You know, I love that car, but then when I... I got into a, a crash and really did a number on it. It it was so painful to me because I, I love that car. So any thoughts on how we tend to extend ourselves outward and so that then anyone who who violates extensions of ourselves that we may put into, say, a Taurus scroll or into a plant or into interior decorating or, or a house or a home or a flag, and uh, people do damage to these exterior things, and we feel it as a, a as an assault on our own person. David. Yeah, I mean, they, like William James classifies the three: your material self, social self, and spiritual self. And our possessions 
our part of our material self, like our possessions are an extension of ourself, like our body. Uh, but it might be a false or, or a weak extension of the self to make our social self. So that uh, if your social relations, and I, I remember like in New York and, you know, like I used to really like Dr. Pepper or something like that. And it's like, oh, I don't really like this person. But then I find out that he likes Dr. Pepper too. It's like, oh, I can't really dislike him as much anymore. And, uh, you know, for a period of time, I drove like a you know nice BMW and people liked me, you know, just because of my car or, uh, you know, I had more money. I used to give more charity uh, and uh, get more respect. And then, uh, you know, I didn't have as much money to uh, you know, give as much charity and uh, my respect level uh, proportionally went uh, went down. So, you know, there's an element of the extension of self uh, from possessions uh, social position, like I said, expertise, uh, your members, like roles that we play in society that's natural. Um, there's theories of self-esteem. And so the interesting part about self-esteem, um, you know, there's a, a, a mission in Perkyovos that says, like a friendship that's based on exterior things, when the exterior things disappear, the friendship disappears. Uh, so in the same way, if your self-esteem is hinged upon things beyond your control, uh, like social prestige or material wealth, and uh, maybe even to, you know, health or uh, physical body shape or various things, if those things go away, your self-esteem will also deteriorate or even like mental function, anything, everything is, uh, uh, you know, nothing's permanent like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, so if your social interaction and your self-concept is based on these external things, it's hard to uphold it. And then you have the relation of the people that, uh, you know, the role playing where I want someone who's going to treat me like I'm really important and special. And therefore, you'll have these mutual role playing where you'll start forming relationships with the people who are willing to uh, treat you like they're, you know, like you want to be treated. You know, maybe you could look at like you, you and Brundle or maybe me and you or most relations like the synagogue role where the friendship is hinged upon a certain role, like, uh, you know, presumably if, uh, you know, a stop being Jewish, most of our friends from synagogue wouldn't be able to keep those friendships. Or, you know, if you have a prestigious position and people treat you very respectfully and then you lost your prestige, uh, you, would you be able to keep those uh, role-based, uh, uh, you know, friendships or social, uh, you know, connections? And one one term that comes up a lot in this book by Ronnie Goldman on conservative claims of cultural oppression is is the term hero system that you can't live without a hero system that that uh, ranks behavior that is heroic versus behavior that is unheroic, and uh, we we all have you know a you know a guiding system by by which we we make sense out of life how would you describe your hero system david um it's probably field-based like i mentioned last time that i don't have your know, real heroes there might be heroes like people i feel i owe because they were nice to me they did favors to me that they didn't have to so they're like you know personal hero to me even though they may not uh you know be like a you know, real hero we talked about that with kind of like orthodox jews with uh on uh you know, not that scrupulous uh business practices well i mean they were certainly very good to me and uh um 
you know, expertise base where I respect, you know, certain chess players or certain thinkers or, or certain people that do their job uh, extremely well. But I'm not a hero type personality. I saw right now I put the link in the chat that Richard Spencer and JF Garepri are on uh, the Crucible with Andrew Wilson. I tried to set Andrew Wilson. I think I briefly mentioned him to you a few months ago. His channel's taken off now. He's you know getting over 100 viewers a night. Um, but you know, I was thinking uh, Richard Spencer, who's kind of remained a hero, even though his role has changed. So it's like uh, you know, like I need a rabbi, I need a role model within the field. So if it's field based, where uh, you know, I basically need a mentor, and I'm going to make the person my hero because I need someone in the field to give me guidance. So it's not really about the person. It's about uh, you know the field, uh, as opposed to you know as Richard Spencer, if he's maintained some of his fan base, even though he's changed roles, where the person was like, no, it's just you that I love. It wasn't that you were leading like the alt right or uh, you know far right movements. Uh, even now that you've completely switched your ideology, uh, you know it's still you that I love because it was something special about you, not the movement that you were leading. So, uh, Richard Spencer, JF Garapi are discussing evolution. What, what's your attitude to evolution by natural selection, David? Well, generally, I told I didn't believe in it. I think that's, I think, part of the reason why you uh, preferred Brundle over me going going back, uh, you know, that, oh, that that time because, uh, you know, you, you found kind of like intellectually disgusting people who uh, um, didn't believe in evolution. But uh, I'm not you know, like an anti-evolution fanatic, you like I study evolution, I'm familiar with it, I'm a scientist, but personally, um, I'm skeptical and, uh, you know, I'm more mystic, I believe in the soul and uh, spiritual factors. So I'm not, I'm not a personal believer in ev evolution. I mean, we debated, that was one of the big things we talked about when we first started streaming. Right. I remember that night it was like a group, we'd have these group discussions and sometimes it just get out, out of control. So sometimes you need to reduce the number. And so that, that evening for that segment, I just wanted to have a discussion among people who believed in, in evolution. So it had nothing to do with preferring one person or one side to another, but sometimes to have, have a more thoughtful discussion, you need to reduce the number of people in the discussion and have find some sort of uh, coherence. Now, you talk about you're a scientist. Uh, on what basis do you do you say that? Well, I studied science in university. Like, I'm not really a scientist. Like, I'm, I, I'm trying to write a book on science. Like, I stream with Jennifer about science. I love science. I read books on it. Um, I call myself a civil engineer, even though I'm not technically a civil engineer. I, I more do property management. Um, so, you know, maybe it's it, it's just an identification that maybe gives myself more credibility uh, than I deserve. You know, I mentioned, you know, God forbid my grandfather, a blessed memory, uh, you always called himself a university graduate, even though technically he wasn't. Um, I refer to myself as a scientist, although I'm not really a scientist because I like to, uh, you know, make myself credible. Like I think I'm logical and, uh, but I do spend hours every day reading science books and I like to keep up with, uh, you know, I stream engineering conferences, one of that's one of the few things I keep on doing on my channel, uh, going to engineering shows and I'm pretty tech savvy. Uh, so, you know, so, but it's more a self appointed role that uh, if people looked into it, they might dispute like, you're no scientist. Uh, what does it, what 
constitutes being a scientist aside from formal qualifications but what are the earmarks of the the scientist like if i was to say i'm an alexander technique teacher i would talk about one my formal training but also the the principles of of movement and and how we operate that uh, come from the alexander technique so what constitutes being a scientist aside from formal qualifications but what are the attitudes and and the principles that uh, constitute being a scientist, David? As approach problems through the scientific method. Um, and it's like professionally, like you're a scientist if you work in the field of science. So like, I, you know, I sometimes uh, will joke to my father who's a doctor who will say something that's, you know, not scientific. And I'm like, you're, you're supposed to be a scientist. It's like, well, he's a doctor. Is that a scientist? Uh, you know, as opposed to someone like in a lab uh, doing experiments, but I think you know, basically, it's someone who uh, approaches problems through the scientific method. And what does that mean? What is the scientific method? Um, you know, empirical approach to uh, problem solving of uh, developing a hypothesis and, and testing it. And, and generally, the the I, mean, I think we also talked about this. You might not use the term scientist, but meaning I go with the truth. So uh, I don't just uh, go off irrational emotional beliefs. I follow the truth and I avow myself to the process. And if the process leads me to information I don't like, I go with the truth as opposed to what I like because I'm about to the scientific process. So what are some examples of, of truth that you accept even though you don't like them? Um, well, like now I'm studying uh, psychology of the self and identity formation. So, uh, you know, just to go through reflecting on myself and say, well, what does the experts and the evidence say about who I am? Um, you know, maybe from like a, you know, Torah, Judaism approach, uh, um, political approach. Um, I was thinking before I came on, if we talked, I, I was talking to Jennifer about uh, what I call tech, uh, technocrats and not in like the modern sense of like uh, Elon Musk and technology, but the Greek sense of uh people who uh, steered their way through the government system. I used to do building permits and uh, you know, like as a civil engineer, uh, steering people through the regulative process in order to uh, construct buildings or do construction. And you know, from politics, there's the aspect of how does the mechanisms of power actually work versus what politicians, you have elections, and what they say to win elections uh, versus you know, what it takes to actually get something done, uh, what the you know the process and procedures. So uh, you know, with that, uh, I'm kind of a just the facts guy. Um, you know, tell me the process and procedures. I don't need your you know you know whether you're going to portray yourself as a good guy or a bad guy. Um, you know, that's that's relevant. That's uh, not scientific. So one of the most painful truths that, that I came to accept with, with great reluctance was that in, in my life experience, I didn't see that uh, Orthodox Jews are any more likely to be ethical or moral than uh, non-Orthodox Jews or even just regular non-Jewish Americans. So that was that was quite, quite disturbing to me. That was a very painful truth. Do you, do you think that what I just said is, is accurate, inaccurate. I learned that young at like 21. I was in New York and I, I could recall a handful of times like, you're supposed to be an Orthodox Jew. 
and uh, you know, saying like, nah, but I mean, living in Brooklyn where there's hundreds of thousands of Hasidim and you know, seeing there's violence and I mean, say Orthodox Jews in many ways are, are you say probably more upstanding in many ways. Uh, but no, I learned that pretty quick. And you said people are people. Uh, there's a rule. There's a system of rules. Uh, you know, just because someone's wearing a yarmulke or, or even davens doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to steal or, or uh, be mean or, 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 or various things. So, uh, but, but yeah, it did hit me. I went through that process of, uh, you know, because, especially because there were certain Orthodox Jews that uh, exemplified the teachings and were extremely nice to me and went out of their way to be nice to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, I quickly learned that uh, you couldn't assume that, uh, you know, all Orthodox Jews were going to be like that. So I'm not sure, you know, how far in or, if, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, I went through that process too. Yeah, but I, it's nothing about not all Orthodox Jews are going to be wonderful. Obviously, I knew that. That wasn't my point. My point was I didn't see that Orthodox Judaism empirically ennobled people, that some people, yes, they did become better through the practice of Orthodox Judaism, but other people became worse. And I didn't see that Orthodox Jews, for example, on average tended to be more honest in business than non-Orthodox Jews. So I didn't see any consistent translation of ennoblement, uh, refinement, improvement in ethics from from the practice of Orthodox Judaism. It's nothing about oh, of course, you know, no individual Orthodox Jew is guaranteed to be righteous. That that's not the point. The point was I thought the process of practicing Orthodox Judaism would ennoble and refine people by and large, and I just didn't see that consistently. I saw it happen with some people, but I just as often saw it made people worse. So that I found incredibly disturbing. Any thoughts on that more precise wording? Yeah, we don't have to get too much off topic on that, but we've talked about this before, and I would say that you know, I think Orthodox Judaism does refine people in the way that Orthodox Judaism emphasizes is important. So, so you know, because it's a dualistic, moral, communal relation, and there's certain aspects that are very important that i was saying those ways it does refine so if you're just talking like a a, a general absolute standard that would apply to jews and non-jews um you're probably right but if you're if you're talking about certain things that the community emphasizes like uh you know being charitable to uh your fellow people in the community um i i do think it refines people and even your average orthodox jew uh would be more refined in those at least aspects that the community emphasizes, even if not uh, overall, uh, you're on an absolute standard. So who do you think would be more likely to molest a kid, a, a priest, a rabbi, a, a plumber, a, a car salesman, or a, a Hollywood uh, movie producer? Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. If you're talking absolute standard versus a question, who would be more likely to lend me or you $20 or who would be more likely to just give me or you $20 and ask for nothing in return and I'm sure me or you could both think of hundreds of Orthodox Jews that would probably just slip as a 20 without thinking about it as opposed to you probably would have a hard time thinking of a bunch of goyim that would slip you a 20 so if you're talking about uh, you know, molesting children maybe God forbid maybe you're right and Orthodox Jews are more likely to do that but the certain aspects that Orthodox Judaism does refine people on and I think you would agree with my point. You could probably think of 100 Orthodox Jews that would just uh, give you a meal, give you a ride, slip you a $20 bill without even thinking about it.
Okay, so you didn't answer my question, and I'll answer my question. I certainly don't think that Orthodox Jews are more likely to molest kids than anyone else. I, I would just say that I don't think any of those professions are more or less likely to molest kids. So whether you're a rabbi or a plumber or a Hollywood movie producer or a priest or a car salesman, I don't think you're more or less likely to molest kids which is a very painful and bitter truth to me because prior to 15, 20 years ago, I would have said, you know, a rabbi would have been far less likely to engage in that, in that sort of, you know, horrific behavior. And now I, I just can't say that with, with uh, any kind of confidence. And I just wish that I could. Yeah, so I'm accepting that. And I'm just I'm wondering, are you acknowledging my point that Orthodox Judaism does in fact refine people not in a general moral way that would be you know, like a universal standard to all humans, but in the certain things that Orthodox Judaism emphasizes, like if you needed help, if your car broke down or you needed a few dollars to borrow, that presumably the vast majority of Orthodox Jews would be pretty likely to help you. Yeah, I think that's very strong. Uh, empirical evidence that uh, any religious identification is going to increase in-group identity. And with an increased in-group identity, you're going to be more likely to do things for members of your in-group. So whether you're an Orthodox Jew, or you're a Mormon, or you're a Muslim, or you're a Methodist or a Roman Catholic, yeah, the stronger your religious identity, that means the stronger your in-group identity, the stronger your in-group identity, the more likely you are to do things for your in-group. So I don't think it actually has much to do with Orthodox Judaism. Being a strongly identifying uh, member of any religion, you'll be more likely to do things for your in-group. But Orthodox Judaism emphasizes charity. So if you think like Hinduism doesn't emphasize charity, I'm not sure your average Indian would think that they could call or ask someone for financial help or in a situation of help because it's not something that's emphasized within the system. Maybe, you know, like Islam or Christianity also emphasizes that by saying there are certain things that Orthodox Judaism emphasizes and in those things that it emphasizes, uh, your average Orthodox Jew is factually refined. So that means even you know, a scumbag Orthodox Jew at your local synagogue is going to be more likely to lend you twenty dollars than you know, than maybe you know the average goy that you know. If well, you're using classify that in groupness. It would depend on the level of their in group commitment. So uh, Orthodox Judaism is a high intensity form of in group identity. So a, a Hindu with an equivalent level of in group identity I suspect they'd be in the same ballpark as the Orthodox Jew in helping out their fellow Hindu. Right, and I say no, because it doesn't emphasize that Judaism, specifically Orthodox Judaism, emphasizes these principles. So it's not just like Hinduism, it's an in-group identity, and therefore people are going to, uh, uh, you know, it's like, no, there is no gamaks, there is no, uh, you know, the local Hindu temple, they don't have a charity fund like that, because it's not something their religion emphasizes. So there is an in-group tendency, but but in uh, you know in terms of charity, uh, it's not one of the emphasized principles of the religion, like in Orthodox Judaism. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't know anything about what uh, Hinduism teaches with regard to charity, but uh, here's another extension of very painful and uncomfortable truth that, that came to me over the years, and that is that someone who believes in God 
is neither more or less likely to be a decent and ethical person than an atheist or a completely secular person. So I just always took it for granted that religious people would be more ethical than those who are atheists. And in my empirical life experience, I just haven't seen that. What's your life experience? Have you noticed a difference between people who believe in God and people who deny the existence of God? Yeah, I mean, there's certain trends, but uh, yeah, I mean, not necessarily. And, and you've mentioned that, like, uh, you know, because I... I, I talk with Key Jump. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or, you know, a popular atheist. And, and I talk regularly with atheists. And, you know, there's the point about IQ. And generally, atheists in America are, are usually more educated and have an IRQ. And that could have a certain correlation with a more uh, ethical uh, you know, behavior or, or, you know, within orthodoxy, certainly Brooklyn, uh or, or maybe, you know, comparatively like L.A., that the Orthodox Jews might be the poorer of uh, the various uh, sects of, of, of Jews and therefore going to have a higher tendency towards uh, immoral behavior, that, you know, more correlated to social economic status. And, and just thinking, um, you know, I, I was thinking of hard truths that I took upon myself. So you're looking at these hard truths of perceptions you had of other people uh, that you found to be untrue. I was thinking more of the hard truth, the truth hurting about perceptions about myself that uh, you know I found to be untrue. And certainly I think those are much more painful. I mean, it's painful for your you know, lofty vision of other people to collapse, but I think it's even more painful for your lofty vision of yourself or even to, you know, pictures of your, uh, your own uh, you know, self capabilities to collapse. Well, it was very painful for me because starting at about age 24, I dedicated myself to the idea that religion makes people better. And, you know, I made all sorts of, you know, arguments and proclamations about that to people. It was a guiding force in my life. And then as I entered my 40s, I, I realized that what I'd been advocating seemed to me to be a delusion. But uh, painful. Well, focus on yourself. Did it make you a better person? regardless of other people you're saying you you it was a you know a big uh identity crisis for you because you as an adult you realized it didn't make you a better person or saying it's identity crisis because it didn't make other people a better people uh both it was very painful to realize that it didn't make me a better person and then it was equally painful to, to realize that it didn't make other people a better person because i know who i am by what I see in the world around me, right? I don't know who I am just by looking inside. I, I know who I am by looking outside and uh, looking at the world around me and trying to make sense of it. And then when I see that the way that I'd been making sense of the world around me was based on a delusion, uh, that, that really shook me up. But you talked about accepting painful truths about yourself. So what, what are, what are, painful truths about yourself here i'll give one out for, for myself i have an excessive and inordinate desire for admiration so it's uh, somewhat delusional it's uh, very quickly becomes dysfunctional it, it was a very painful realization given to me by a psychiatrist about uh, 20 22 years ago that i had a uh, narcissistic personality disorder and so narcissism means an excessive thirst for other people's admiration and, and attention. So that was a very painful 
uh, truth about myself that uh, I accepted 22 years ago, but I've had to ever since then, like accept it anew each day or I get into get into trouble. So any painful truths about yourself that you feel ready to share? Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of things, but I, I got into, you know, yeshiva at, you know, 19 and on to the, you know, the Musser, the character refinement process. And, uh, you know, so I have a, de a lot of shortfallings, probably that I'm, I'm really just emotionally detached. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't feel attached to other people, uh, you know, even my family, um, you know, like almost like, you know, I feel like there's something wrong with me. I'm just, uh, you know, like, uh, but, uh, I've kind of recognized that from when I was young, because I went through intense you know, process. I went to Jerusalem and became you know, basically a completely new person. So I went through uh, the, you know, these processes. But I would push back on you and said, like, no, I would unquestionably Orthodox Judaism has made me a better person because I, I was a nasty kid. And, uh, you know, saying, like, I almost never get angry. And even, you know, on the Internet, you say occasionally, you hear me, you know, even death threats and arguing, but, uh, you know, none of those, almost all of those, uh, the anger dissipated after the stream. Um, I don't have long-term grudges. Um, I don't pick on people. Like I was a nasty kid. I picked on fat people. I picked on weird people just, uh, just to do it. Um, and saying through being an Orthodox Jew, um, I was like, that's wrong. Like, I don't, I don't just pick on people. I'm not going to make fun of a person, uh, you know, just because, uh, you know, they're nebic. Um, I, I try to, uh, um, you know, be like Aaron and bring peace between people. I don't carry long-term grudges. I almost always advise people to de-escalate conflict. I, I almost never, uh, probably never advise people to escalate conflict. And these things came from religion, Orthodox Judaism. I, I would assume that you, you yourself are like that. Like, it's probably just not in you to uh you know to make fun and tease and cause harm to like a nevik or or even to to try to carry on long-term conflict and it's probably the orthodox judaism which is like like no i'm just not going to do that i yeah I, I disagree because almost nobody after age 30 engages in the deliberate public humiliation of other people face to face so almost all the traits that you just described are common changes in people as they move from being a kid to an adult so a 35-year-old atheist is not, generally speaking, going to mock someone's appearance or, you know, level of fat or, or stutter in, you know, regular social interactions. So yeah, did Donald Trump. I mean, like, no, I mean, Donald Trump is like 70 and he's the prime example of uh, you know, someone who does that and just saying, like, you're saying, like, <laughs> an Orthodox Jew, I would never behave like that. It is because I'm an Orthodox Jew and I would completely disagree because, uh, uh, even, you know, like uh, the sexualization of women uh, and say, like, no, I, I don't think so. I think yeah, there's plenty of adults who are not refined. And, uh, you know, God forbid, I see it all the time, um, uh, you know, sexualization of uh, of women and uh, and just say, like, no, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm not going to talk about uh, the sexualization of uh, of women and, uh, you know, various things. But, but I... I I, I, you know, there's certain levels like you talk about honesty in business where people will, you know, like I'm in New York, like people are pretty open, like, you know, hear people like bragging about how they're cheating on their wife, uh, bragging about how they're stealing. If, you know, I used to be a guy in Shomer Shabbos and all the snorers would get around and uh, export, you know, and, and give over trade secrets. 
and uh, and you also scam artists. If if you're you're just a bunch of scam artists together, uh, they'll talk about uh, you, you know they'll, they'll brag about their scams and trade secrets. Uh, but I think uh, you know, God forbid, sexual misbehavior that's uh, you know pretty common among adults, and, uh, and and dwelling on the people they dislike. And you know, they go Orthodox Jews, maybe like Arabs or Palestinians or various things or, or liberals. Uh, like Charles Moskowitz, like like I, I just uh, find it horrible. Like every time you know, he mentions like Governor Whitmer, he's like the three witches and something like that. He's like I'm an Orthodox Jew, I don't talk like that. Uh, but when I was younger, I do. And uh, you know, I think refined people like my parents are professionals. Uh, but I, I hear a lot of adults still talking like that. Yeah. Well, how, how would your behavior be concretely different now if between being an Orthodox Jew and being an atheist? You would not be engaging in the same bullying and mean behavior that you did as a kid if you are now an atheist at uh, your, what are you, 40 years of age? So as a 40-year-old atheist, you wouldn't be engaging in this childlike behavior either. So what would be the difference in your behavior now as an Orthodox Jew as opposed to if you were an atheist? Um, well, I'm, I'm compassionate and merciful that I would probably be a harsh person who would just, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, even, you know, God forbid, thinking of my father, thinking of... Uh, you know, some Orthodox Jews are accomplished people that kind of like, oh, people get what they deserve, or uh, you know, like you know, like you know, like dumbass, uh, uh, you know, moron uh, type uh, thoughts that you know, generally I don't think that I don't think about people and think that they deserve their own suffering or like moron uh, type thing that I think a lot of people. And if I was an adult, I would probably you know, if I was single, you know, maybe I'd be going to bars, uh, womenizing. Uh, you know, like I was in New York and, and, you know, you probably know better than almost anybody, uh, you know, where people will plot out their, uh, you, know, you know, their womenizing and, uh, you know, so to say their, their, their sin. And uh, if you're a 40 year old atheist in New York right now, David, you would not be out there womanizing. I mean, that that wouldn't be a realistic option. So if I, I was thinking with children. Of course I would. I, I lived in New York City saying, the, you know, the average age of most people in bars is like 40s or 50s i mean you have some younger people uh but no i mean absolutely there's 40 50 year old men on the prowl and like god forbid uh you know you'd be trying to uh you know, you know uh, uh you know the game probably in hollywood in new york is to uh have sexual relations you know, like uh, you know every night as often as possible and uh I, I think that uh you know relatively that's probably what half of people in manhattan do probably in la where you're out there there's probably uh you know but we're talking about you. You. You wouldn't be in a bar, even if you're an atheist, picking up women. That's not who you are, and it has nothing to do with your Orthodox Judaism. You're just not – that just wouldn't be a realistic option for you at age 40. I, I wouldn't be compassionate, though. You're, cause I'm, well, no, it would be. No, I'm saying, like, most people are – I'm not talking uh, about you, most people. I'm talking about you. You're not the type of personality who's going to be happy hanging out in a bar at age 40 trying, trying to pick up women. No, it's not my personality. I'm just saying that, uh, but I would probably be, you know, like I wasn't, as when I was younger, before I went to Israel and became Orthodox Jew, I wasn't compassionate at all towards other people. Like it wouldn't have bothered me to but see But we're not people. talking about your younger self. You keep wanting to slip away from a very simple question. The difference is not between yourself now and your younger self. The question is yourself now as an Orthodox Jew versus yourself now as an atheist. How old are you? Are you approximately 40 years of age? 44. Okay, 44. So a 44-year-old Duvid, okay, if you were completely secular, 
I, I just don't picture you being at ease and, and happy hanging out in bars trying to pick up chicks. Well, I don't know what I would have been like had I not became um, orthodox, but it was saying that I know that I worked on certain character traits and it was because of my orthodoxy that I worked on them, you know, such like developing the trait of uh, compassion, um, you know, lush and horror. I don't think I would be careful about lush and horror, maybe a, a, a little bit. I don't think I would have been compassionate because I know I had to really work hard on those things. And uh, on the other hand, I'm sure there there are ways that you're a, you're a more refined person because of your Orthodox Judaism. But on the other hand, you've missed out on a lot of social connections by living in a much more narrow world. So if you if you were an atheist, uh, you would have a a larger life. You'd have more social connections. You wouldn't be able to retreat to an insular world. And so, as having a larger life, that would also rub off some of the the harsher edges to your personality and that would that in and of itself would have a refining effect when you have a larger life when you're mixing with a wider variety of people when you're more engaged with with the, the general populace that also has a refining effect I mean, to some extent i think it was the opposite even here that i'm you know uh you're kind of introverted that uh uh, and don't do much, but uh, no, I, th I think it's the yarmulke and being an Orthodox Jew that actually led me to experience much more, especially in Manhattan, where I did all sorts of things like you know, party promoting, uh, um, you know, involved in you know drug dealing, you, even uh, you know cocaine addict, uh, uh, party promoting, managing rappers and concerts. It was uh, something I wouldn't have had myself. That it was the, that I was under the yarmulke of an Orthodox Jew. That it was me as an Orthodox Jew dealing with people as a Jew that gave me the confidence to uh, do these things. Even to, when I go to uh, engineering conferences, uh, it's still, I think, like the power of the yarmulke that uh, you know, gives me the courage to go to these conferences and go table to table and uh, you know, just speak to people because you know, people ask, oh, you're Jewish. And you're like, yeah, I'm Jewish. And that's what gives me you know, the confidence to uh, kind of get over my introversion. I mean, maybe you didn't suffer introversion like that, but I think you know, without my yarmulke, um, I don't know if I would have, uh, you know, like, and I've done substantial, I've done more things than, you know, a lot of people. Like I was right there in the middle of uh, Manhattan and seen a lot of things. And even here in Detroit, uh, you know, like uh, I, I saw, uh, you know, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, you like, I know almost all the politicians um, and uh, uh, wealthy business people. And I, it's the power of my yarmulke that gives me the courage to walk over them and speak to them. Uh, you know, like I read your book, you know, maybe it's the same for you too. You know, if you were just Luke Ford, would you have interviewed those people? But like, I read your book and it's like, no, it was the power of your yarmulke and, and being under the mantle of Orthodox Judaism that gave you the courage to be like, I, I want to speak to you. I want to interview you. I want to find out about you. I mean, you, you don't see that like that? I'm sure that that plays a role, but it, it both both gives you the strength and the energy to extend yourself, but it also the has... Identity. Yeah, they're saying that, they, like, okay, we just, I'm Luke Ford uh, versus I'm Luke Ford, an Orthodox Jew. You know, so it gave me the identity, like, who are you? And saying, well, I'm an Orthodox Jew. That's who I am. Well, and, I... and saying, like, for, you didn't feel like that when you interviewed... I mean, I think you, you said you wore your yarmulke always when you yeah. interviewed those people, when you contacted those people, and if they were like, well, who the hell are you? Well, I'm an Orthodox Jew. That's who I am. And I think that that identity largely was what gave me the confidence to, uh, you know, get out there and in the middle of the things that I got in the middle of.
Well, I've interviewed thousands of people without a yarmulke. I've interviewed thousands of people with a yarmulke. It comes with, it comes with advantages and and uh, disadvantages. So, to what extent, what's been more influential? Your personality leading you towards the practice and life of an Orthodox Jew, or Orthodox Judaism shaping your personality? A combination of both, you know, because there are a lot of things about my personality I had to really change. And it was, you know, because I saw that this is what Orthodox Judaism teaches that I changed. And there were probably, you know, like the, especially like Haredi culture, where where it's like, I was never much for small talk or, or uh, social normities. So just kind of you go into shul and, you know, the guy says, you know, and you don't have to do small talk or what are you doing there? You know, so I was able to fit in like, these are the rules. I follow the rules. And uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, social conventions like, like sports or, or, you know, the normities that uh, people talk about. And even as an excuse, like I said, okay, like, yeah, I'm, I was kind of a nerdy introvert anyway. So I probably wouldn't have been, uh, you know, going to bars, picking up women or, but by saying that the being under the yarmulke uh, gave me an identity to be like, well, what are you doing here? Well, well like I'm an Orthodox Jew. And, uh, and he, you know, like I said, uh, speaking to powerful people, speaking to uh, politicians, being curious, like, you're like, well, what, you know, why do you care so much about uh, politics and current events and what's going on? And, uh, you know, so the Orthodox Jewish identity, I think, in many ways is uh, quite empowering, even on the, you know, business that I worked in, you know, fields of, uh, uh, you know, the stock market, uh, uh, you know, trading, uh, construction, um, you know, that, that uh, the Orthodox identity is certainly for certain things empowering. Um, but at the same time, you've also stepped back uh, frequently from Orthodox Judaism. So what is it about Orthodox Judaism that leads you to uh, step back from your level of involvement? Because I'm not really one of them. Like, I'm just a half Jew, Balchuva, and my family, you know, like, so as I got older, um, you know, I didn't get married, and I, and, and I, you know, saw, like, it's not really who I am. So I, I had, I think I had to work more to, like, becoming a Goy again than to be an Orthodox Jew. I think I, fitting into Orthodox Judaism was relatively easier for me. I felt the comfort of being just another guy under a yarmulke, uh, but, you know, at a certain age, like, you know, I was, you know, Duvid the Balchuva and, uh, like, you know, like I wasn't married and, uh, you, you know, thank God my family's relatively successful and they never, uh, you know, really thought it was a good idea for me to uh, be an Orthodox Jew. So I kind of had to reinvent myself as a half Jew, um, you know, kind of out of necessity. I reinvented myself as a half Jew because I failed as an Orthodox Jew. Okay, great. I think I'm going to wrap up for tonight. Do you have any final words for this evening? Yeah, nice talking. I, I kind of like these public psychoanalysis. Like I think I mentioned that as a direction and streaming. Um, and, you know, I think me and you have been in the game a while enough. We don't mind uh, taking the punches, being out there, and, uh, you know, doing the public self uh, psychoanalysis. So, you know, it was fun. Nice talking. Uh, blessings. Okay, take care. Bye-bye.